look so nice, so that's what I like. Is that I said it here, how can you just don't stop it and just get ready to jam? With Disco Daddy, wide world of hip-hop radio show. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, only on VibeLive.com, with special guests every week. Don't miss it. <laughs> Hello out there, Disco Daddy here reminding you that every Saturday, 1 p.m. PST Pacific Standard Time, we go live on the air with some of the most iconic, legendary figures in hip-hop telling the stories of hip-hop, at least their slice of the pie. And welcome to Disco Daddy's wide world of hip-hop. Today, we have one of those iconic figures uh, hailing from the West Coast, he's going to tell his fascinating story, which is a page straight out of West Coast hip-hop history. His name is General Jeff. General Jeff, how are you doing today, my brother? Yo, yo, yo. How's it going, brother Brother Disco Daddy? I'm honored to be I'm here. Fine. Man, this is, this is beautiful. I'm feeling great. I'm pumped up. Hip-hop is alive and well in 2017. Yes. <laughs> And you know that. I'm good, Jeff. Thank you very much, and thank you for doing our show. Now, you have a unique story because you were involved in two or three different entities during the developing years of West Coast hip-hop out here, which we recognize as first generation, uh, anything going from 1970 up to 1983, all first generation uh, uh, historical figures from the time the foundation was being laid, East Coast and West Coast, the same time period, time period applies to first generation. So when you hear the term first generation talking to my audience, that's what we're talking about, people who were around laying the foundation for what later became known as hip-hop, um, some before the uh, advent of uh, recordings and some after. But uh, 1970 to 83 is roughly all first generation. My man falls straight into that uh, um, category, and we're going to let him tell his story uh, and mention the entities and how he weaves his way through hip-hop history and now why he's standing here, what he's doing, which is also very interesting. Mr. General Jeff, welcome to Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip-Hop. We just want you to start at the beginning where you were born, where you were raised, what the flavor was like around you that drew you into this now worldwide genre we call hip-hop. General Jeff, y'all. Woo, man, thank you for that powerful introduction. You know, it's, this is actually a topic that I've never really, you know, actually gone all the way deep into and laid it all the way out. So, it's, wow. you know, give me okay. a moment to really be- get my bearings together because it's a whole lot of decades that then went by. Exhale, you know, film, exhale you know. my brother, and relax, and you just tell your story. We're going to be listening. You got a full hour devoted to General Jeff, so you don't have to rush Woo. nothing. You can go into detail. But we want to historically get down the West Coast hip-hop contribution. You're one of the people who have contributed, and you have interesting stories to tell about the worked with. So uh, you got the yeah, floor, so, my brother. No, indeed. Thank you for that. And so just know, let me just, you know, be squared up that, you know, um, uh, an hour may not be enough time, but we're going to go and lay it out, <laughs> it, 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 you know what I mean? Because, I mean, if we're going to start with the details, we got to conclude okay. with the details, you know what I mean? So forgive yes, me, we got to rush at the end to get it all in, <laughs> fine. But we're going to start off like this. I'm born and raised in the streets of South Central Los Angeles, 
you know, in, in the game capital of America, you know, uh, and we're just going to leave that right there. Um, right. So, but at, at five years old, you know, my mama, rest in peace, she had me uh, uh, tap dancing and, and acting and doing a whole lot of things in, in, in the performing arts. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, was, I, was a, I was part of uh, Al Gilbert in Beverly Hills, Al Gilbert's uh, uh, Dance and Performing Arts Center. And wow. so, through, so through that, I was doing a lot of child acting. So I was up for roles going against, uh, like, Todd Bridges was, like, my number one nemesis, you know, when mm. it came to, like, Roots <laughs> and, like, all the stuff that you saw Tom, Todd Bridges on. I was, like, that kid that just that, that, that <laughs> made it to the final cut but got faded by Todd Bridges. All right. He was because I was a tall kid. And so when he wow. was a little short little he was the short little cute kid. Oh look at the cute little oh, right, the right. cute little one. We want the cute Bridget. little one. And it was like, wow. oh man. But anyway <laughs> you know, you know, oh, so there was McDonalds commercials, I was, you know, tap dancing and exorcist too and you know, all that kind wow. of stuff. So entertainment industry I was exposed to entertainment industry at a young age. Um, right. you know, got a little older. Um, I remember in elementary school, you know, so locking was the thing. And so we was in the streets locking. We were at school mm. locking. Even in my, you know, when I graduated from elementary school in the early, in the mid-70s, uh, right. you know, I was locking. You know, that was the thing. It's the pop that you feel. And I got it point you. I got it point you and interject right here for our audience worldwide. We're worldwide. That's locking was a art form developed here on the West Coast where where Indeed. General Jason resides. So when he tells you that's what was going on, that's basically in the seventies the predominant form that of dance and it emanated from the Soul Train and Van Campbell lot. But it was a predominant form of uh, street dance that was very popular here even before the advent of hip hop. So go on, Jeff. Yes, sir. And so even on, my, on our graduation from uh, elementary school, we had our graduation ceremonies. Myself and two of my other classmates were uh, like the best dancers in the school. And, you know, you know, the teachers suggest that we put a routine together and we performed this locking style. And we had it like the, the cold, super cold, the soul train, uh, uh, the gear, the outfits, the cold, uh, soul brother, soul brother number one outfits. I mean, we would play like with teeth. And one of, my, one, of the, one of the cats, I still talk to him to this day, he said his uncle uh, videotaped that with a uh, eight millimeter camera. They don't even make those anymore. Those. But right. he got the footage those. some got the footage wow. buried somewhere deep in the in the garage or storage or somewhere. You better man, tell him to, to find it, Jeff, trying, because they man, I've been grade. telling him I've it's been telling grade, him that, but yeah. I've been telling okay, him that for the last ten last ten years. Like, can I get that? <laughs> and let's transfer it, and I'll pay for right. it. The digital transfer. Right. I'm like, I need right. to see that footage because I know I was hot. No, we, no, 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 no. But we was hot, and that's a, a special moment in time. So then from okay. that, in the late 70s, um, um, you know, pop locking came on. So I know I started pop locking in 78 when that was the okay. hot new dance craze. And then that, boy, that was one of the first ones that was out here in the, uh, the West Coast that was started pop locking, you know, mm-hmm. which which also was, was credited with being started in the West Coast. And so... Right from there, um, you know. So of course, so 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 fast forward. You know, I go to high school, Crenshaw High School in the hood, and 
Uh, you know, of course, but by my acting career stopped because I started growing too tall. I'm 6'4", 6'4", 220. You know, so, so the whole thing was that Hollywood, like the little, short, cute kids. And right, I was right. like this, I was this baby face, baby face giant. And I just was awkward in terms of what Hollywood was doing. And so then from right. there out in the streets, I started playing sports. And so then my, my focus went away from, you know, the acting and went into the uh, to sports, which it became naturally good at. So when I got out of the Crenshaw right. High School at that time, had like the greatest uh, high school basketball program in CIF history. And still so do. Over there. Still and, do. Right. Still right. And so, yeah. I, I, so just so folks know, I was a state champion on our championship team wow. in uh, uh, my senior year. So, I, you know, so I mean, you know, why the whole wow. variety of skills. But at the same time, when I'm in high school, you know, all these uncles, that's when Uncle Jam's Army, uh, the, the, the biggest uh, dance promotion crew of DJs, um, you know, in the history of hip-hop, uh, yes, you know, you know uh, that's when they were, you know, you know, doing their thing. So I would go to their dances, just you know, pop locking and just being in the energy, and then talking to flirting with the girls. Of course, that. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so but so did you, did you meet? Did you meet Roger? How did you meet Roger Clayton of Uncle Jam's Army? And you know, when I used to go to the dances, I would just okay. I'm just out in the crowd. So I would right. see them on stage as, you know, Mr. Prince, you know, Roger Clay. I didn't know him personally at that time. And, you know, he gets okay. in love and them can. They was just doing their thing. And so I went from, you know, dancing to the records. And then when I saw Egyptian Lover doing his thing, he motivated me to, like, get on the turntables. Because, mm. um, you know, he, he would get on the tables and spin. And he was so unique and special with his skill set that, right. you know, a lot of people would, like, stop dancing, like, just to watch him DJ, like, you know, and so it's like, oh, that's, uh, you know, man, he, you know, he, he's attention-grabbing attention kind of a, a technique over here. And so I'm like, well, right. let me, you know, I want to get on the turntables. And so at the same time, uh, growing up, I was, I was so fascinated with music that when my mom would throw house parties and all her friends and relatives would come over, you know, she had this, uh, the old school stereo in the living room with the, you know, the, uh, the 45s, you would play 45s and, and, and 78s and 78s up in yeah, there, right. you know. And so, so that she had like stacks and stacks and stacks of, um, you know, the records piled up. And so I literally would, you know, I don't know why, but just as a hobby, I would just literally like just spend hours just like studying and just reading the records and looking at the, mm -hmm. just, you know, every once so when they, the part, I mom would throw her uh, out get togethers and house parties, you know, somebody would have, Oh, I wish I could hear such and such a record. And it's like, <laughs> but it's going, but it's going to take too long to find it. Oh, never mind. But I sure wish I could hear that record. Me, a little boy. Oh, I'll find it. I know where it is. Yeah. Yeah. And they looking at me like, you know where it is. Like, well, I'll give you a – he's like, oh, he don't know. He just saw oh, a little boy, y'all, so he just said So I'm like six, seven years uh -huh. old. And, uh, you know, they're like, oh, I'll give you a dollar right now if you know where it is. And I'll run over there to the stack in less than 30 <laughs> seconds, have it queued up. Bam. They're like, Bam. oh, how did oh, you know okay. okay. Then it was like, okay, well, I bet you can't find so-and-so and such-and-such. And, man, I was – so I started off digging up in the crates at six to seven years old. I didn't know uh -huh. that that's what that was. And so I trust right. and believe, and that was my thing. Less than five, ten seconds, let me go out and go right to the stack. Bam. Hey, queue it up. Bam. Stack. Bam. Right. And so – that was my first uh, 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 foray into DJing. So when I got to okay. be a teenager, go, you know, going Uncle Jam's Army dances, I had a couple. Mm -hmm. We had a couple of buddies in the hood 
that would DJ house parties, you know, just in our community, in our neighborhood. Right. And so I started hanging with those cats because, you know, I could pop lock, and then when I would get out, that would bring, you know, crowd, and it would be live and festive. And so, but I started wanting to play the records, and I don't want to then. Let me get behind the turntables. But, you know, we didn't have we didn't have the equipment that Uncle Jan's Army had, so we couldn't right. even, you know, scratch records. We could just blend, go from, you know, side right. to side. We couldn't really right. do tricks. <laughs> so, anyway, and at that time, so at that time, you know, we had to come with a name. So my name was, was you know, DJ Jeff. That's all it was. That's all I had. And so that's all was okay. necessary. So then... Going to these right. Uncle Jam's parties, then it's like, wait a minute, man! I think I want to get up and join these guys and start <laughs> DJing for real because I want to do the uh, tricks and stuff. But I uh, need access to the turntable. You know what? It tw- techniques twelve hundreds. Oh, okay, that's what we need to get. Right. And uh, right. that was like the mecca. That was the mecca of of, of DJing too. So anyway, um, yeah. moving forward from there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I started working at the uh, Slauson and Western at the DJ booth. That's what the uh, that's what the record store was called that Roger Clayton owned, and um, mm-hmm. and Uncle Jam's Army, you know, had so if that was the headquarters for Uncle Jam's Army. So through right. that, I befriended you know Egyptian Lover, befriended you know a whole lot of other cats in the army, and oh, so okay. from there there was this big dance in 1984, I believe it was that was at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium with Curtis Blow, Houdini, Dr. Jeff mm-hmm. and Mr. Hyde, and a whole bunch of other folks. And so mm-hmm. I didn't know, but Egyptian Lover wound up producing this record for this new on-air personality at 1580 K-Day named Russ Parr. So he, and he was the morning show guy that would tell the morning jokes. So in mm-hmm. his morning jokes, uh, one of his, he would have a bunch of different characters that would come on. He would do, you know, his, his voice. He would flip his voice. I remember and his him, him and J.J. Johnson, the early morning show on K-Day. Yeah. Indeed. And so so one of his mm-hmm. early one of his, his biggest most popular characters was this cat named Bobby Jimmy. And so it's Bobby, Bobby Jimmy and the Critters. And so <laughs> it was so popular that he said, Hey man, I, w- I, w- I want to do a record. And so he said so he put the word out in the streets like I need somebody to produce a record for me. Who 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 wow. should I get to produce it? And the word came mm-hmm. back, you gotta go to Uncle Jam's army, you gotta go to Egyptian Lover. And so Egypt produced wow. Russ Parr's first record called We Like Ugly Women. And I so know then that. The, the song wow. the song blew up okay. and folks was playing it and then, you know, let's get him to perform and so the whole thing was because it was Bobby Jimmy and the critters, he needed cats on stage to back him up. So he asked right. Egypt, did he know some guys that could, you know, join in? And he was like, oh, we got some guys in Uncle Jim's. I'm sure we got some guys. And I wound up being one of those guys that joined wow. in. Just to, so, so, and that was a fluke because there was the, the, he handpicked two other guys. And, but the whole thing, aside from that, we had already, the three of us had decided when we go to this dance at the Santa Monica Civic, we're going to dress alike with our Army fatigues and some, right. other, some other stuff. And so then when, when I got there, um, one of the other guys was, was late getting there. And so it's like, man, we about to perform. And it was like, well, you dress like him, you know, talking to me. He said, well, well you get on stage and join us. And it was like, y'all figure out some kind of route, just jump around, figure, just follow my lead. Sure, no problem. Wow. So then just wow. moments before we actually performed, the other guy showed up. And it was like, oh, he's here. So the guy was like, oh, it's cool, it's cool. So why don't you just be the DJ? So I started off as the DJ for Bobby, Jimmy, and the Critters. And wow. uh, so I would just let the record fly. 
and that was that. So mm-hmm. then as we, you know, we would go around, one of the guys in the front was like, he was like, man, I don't want to be in the front no more. I want to be the DJ. And I was like, great, because I don't want to be the DJ way in the back. I want to be in the front. So we just switched, we switched spots, and that's how wow. I became a featured cat in a Bobby, Jimmy, and a Critter. Wow. And so and it started from there. So, okay. you know, that went you know, So at 19, I contracted cancer. I had cancer, uh, a Hodgkin's disease, yeah. which is cancer in the lymph node. So that messed off my athletic career because I was really wow. thinking I was going to go pro. Wow. That, you know, God I had to stop you, performing. I had to do, uh, you know, chemotherapy. And, I mean, it was they, wow. they surgery. They took my spleen out. It was, a, it was you know, it was a life-altering situation. But because wow. I was, my love for hip-hop was so true, and it wasn't about getting paid because there wasn't no money in hip-hop back then. But, you know, I would, still, I would come. I would come out of the chemotherapy treatment, and then I would still, you know, go straight to the stage and go on to go on the show on the road with with Bobby Jean and the Critics. So finally, right. it got, but it finally got to a point to where it was too it was too much. You know, I left that group, and so then, you know, I got well, and then it was like, okay, I want to do my own solo album, because you know, at that time, I'm one of the hottest cats in, in the laboratory. I'm one of the hottest unknown cats. They don't even know. So then wow. what I did was I contacted, I set up some meetings with some uh, uh, record companies, and I contacted Egyptian Lover and said, Egypt, I want you to hear my demo tape before I go have these meetings next week with these record companies. Egypt okay. was, okay, cool, no problem, blah, blah, blah. Egypt hung up, called me back in exactly 30 minutes and said, listen, General Jeff, I, I just came out of the studio with my brand-new album, and I'm leaving on tour in two weeks. He said, I need a keyboard guy. I need a guy to, to dance and do keyboards. That, that's what you do. Can will you come out on on the road with me in two weeks? And he said, I know you trying mm-hmm. to. I know you said I know you about to do your own thing, but I need. I'm short one guy. And it was like, man, it's a fork wow. in the road. You know, it's like you do my <laughs> right. thing, you know, and, and get my thing off, or or go out on the road with Egypt, guaranteed in two weeks. And right. I thought, well, let me put my thing on hold just for a minute at that time, and then I'll go on the uh-huh. road with Egypt. And so let me go to the practices, and that's when Egypt and Lever at that big house in Woodland Hills, and right. we would go there and rehearse. So during, in, in that band, there was, you know, it was, Egypt had two, two different types of shows. If they wanted to do just a track show where the music would play and we would sing on top, since I was mm-hmm. just a good dancer, I would, right. uh, you know, was one of the four guys dancing him when he wanted his live band. I was one of the mm. keyboards on the right. The, 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 it was this young kid on the other side that was the keyboardist on the left. That was Rodney O. And so wow. I met Rodney O from being in Egypt's band. And so, it, you know, when we would rehearse in Woodland Hills, you know, we'd do Egypt stuff. The electronic. So when we, for away from that, we would take a break. Rodney, you know, was like, yo, man, but I'm, we, I fuck with this, but I'm playing, I actually do, you know, I'm into the hardcore hip-hop, and I'm like, cool, that's what I'm into, right. too. And so he and I hit it off. And then Rodney was wow. like, I just came out of the studio, and I'm finishing up this brand-new track that I'm doing, because he had, uh, Egypt had produced a single out on Rodney, because Rodney actually was part of the crew. A lot of people don't right. know that Rodney O and Brother Marquis from the Two Lives crew Back in, what was it, like 1983, they, they, Rodney was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, and they did uh-huh. a record called, as a group called the Caution Crew. And so, wow. you know, Brother Mark, so I when uh, uh, Rodney O also knew Mr. Mix from the Two Lives Crew, 
And when mm-hmm. the guy, a guy left, they wanted Rodney O to take his spot, and he was like, no, let me get my boy brother Marquis up in that. And that's how the two live crew was actually formed. They put a record wow. out on the West Coast, sent it to Miami. Luke heard it. Luke uh, pulled them, you know, said pulled them to Miami, and then launched the relaunched the two live crew out of Miami, and they're historically wow. known as a as a, a Miami bass sound. The creators of the Miami never bass knew that. that, but they're actually the two live crew is from the West Coast. They from Cali. Right. That's a West, okay. West the West Coast took the 808 sound and the the, the mm-hmm. electronic up tempo stuff and went to uh, Miami, and that became the Miami bass sound. So the West Coast, we 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 you know we give birth to more. More than what we get credit for. So anyway, General Jeff, yeah, General Jeff, dropping bombs on Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop. Continue, my brother. Yes, sir. So you know, so when Rodney Yo played this track for me, it turned out to be uh, Everlasting Bass. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow! Everlasting Bass, and it was like, oh yes, my God! Wow, that was incredible. And so that was going to be um, a Rodney Yo, you know, just a Rodney Yo solo record. And then Rodney right. was like, okay, I got these spots where I need a DJ to do some, you know, a little cutting and scratching. And so the cats in Uncle Jim's Army, the right. cats that was in Uncle Jim's Army that, you know, that was in Egypt's group was like, oh, man, there's this hot new cat that uh, out in the streets of Compton called uh, Joe Cooley. You know, mm-hmm. let's bring him in and, and get him to uh, do the scratching. And Joe came, you know, came in and, and put it down so tough that Rodney rewrote the second verse uh, and talked about how how dope Joe Cooley was. And right. next thing you know, that record came, you know, they and, and it came out Rodney O and featuring, the first it came out Rodney O featuring DJ Joe Cooley, and then it morphed okay. into Rodney O and DJ Joe Cooley. And Joe so, Cooley. Wow. So, That's so, you know, so then, you know, when they would actually uh, open up for Egypt, um, when Egypt would have shows, you know, to get Rodney up to introduce Rodney O's record, um, you know, they were like, we need a hype man to go hype up the crowd, you know, dude. So Rodney O asked me to be the hype man. So I would go out there, hype up the crowd, bring Joe mm-hmm. Cooley on. He would do his incredible Joe Cooley scratches. And then he, and then we bring on Rodney O, and then Rodney O would come on with the songs. And then we kept doing it. So then when Everlasting Bass blew up, then it got to the <laughs> point where Rodney O started having shows separate from Egypt, and Rodney right. was like, "Yo, man, we still need you as our hype man to come on over here and do what we do." And then I had to mm. pick and choose. Okay, am I gonna still be with Egypt, or am I wow. still gonna be right? So, so I was, there were times yeah. where I'm running, I'm doing shows. I'll have my my leather my leather joint my pants on with with Egypt, and I have to run back <laughs> and put my my b boy uh, sweatsuit. My Puma sweatsuit on and run back, oh. and run back with Rodney O and vice versa. And this wow, time, Rodney, you know, the, the Everlasting Bass blew up. It's just it's a West Coast right. classic. And then I had to right. pick and choose, and I rolled with Rodney O and Joe Cooley instead instead of Egypt. And that's how oh, I ended wow. up over. So I ended up over there. So I went from Uncle Jim's Army and went to Bobby, Jimmy, and the Critters. You know, then with the Egyptian Lover and then Rodney O and Joe Cooley. And so I what years? What, what span of years was this? That so, 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 you know, Uncle Jim's Army was like 82, you know, 80, 82, 83, 84. Uh-huh. Uh, Bobby okay. Jimmy was 84, 85, 86. Uh-huh. Egypt was 85, 86. And then Rodney O and Joe Cody was 86 on the way till 92. Right. So I did two, so I you... did two albums. 
I did two albums with Bobby, Jimmy, and the Critters where I'm literally on the album cover, literally writing the songs, producing, all uh, that kind of wow. stuff. And then right. I did uh, three albums with Rodney Owen and Joe Cooley. Okay. What happened to Russ Park? I, I know he's still around, but have you yeah, been in contact doing, with Russ Park? You know, he started, he had a, uh, when, you know, after, you know, he, he moved, went back east and was doing an on-air radio show in Washington, D.C., and then he started uh, uh, producing uh, uh, some stuff, some television stuff for uh, uh, TV One, and uh, that's the last I know he's still around. I know last year we had Uncle Jam's Army uh, reunion okay, at the wow. sports arena before they, they tore down, and he was there right. earlier. But by the time I got there, he had just left with Greg Mack, so we had just missed uh, him. But, you know, we'll link up soon. So, But I know he's still around doing his thing. So now okay. from um, – so with Rodney Owen and Joe Cooley, I did three albums, uh, the Me and Joe album. And so when I got with Rodney Owen and Joe Cooley, understand, it was, it, was, it was as an official group member, I wasn't just a hype man. I, I came on as the producer. You know, Rodney would produce joints. Me and Rodney were producing, and then we would bring right. Joe Cooley into the studio to do the cut. Right. And okay. so it was me and Rodney putting all that stuff. And so, you know, we started, wow. when we actually formed a group, it was three of us, you know, three, it was all three, you know. So but my whole thing was because Rodney and Joe were, the, you know, he put out Everlasting Bass, Rodney said, okay, well, we just going to add your name to, you know, the line of Rodney O, Joe Cooley, and General Jeff. And I said, man, that sounds like a law firm. That don't sound like no hip-hop group. It's too many names. If somebody else comes, then it's going to be four names and then five names. No, 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 no. Let's just leave it at two names and three guys. And so a lot but do, of, you, a lot of people, do, you, do you regret that now? No, because that was my strategy. Okay. Because at that time, I was like, the maximum lifespan of a rapper in hit anybody in hip-hop is three years. <laughs> Right. So if I turn my name out now, and I ain't even went right. solo because I still got, you know, I still got my uh, career, my solo career. I don't want to burn my name out even before I get started because okay. then I'm going to have to change my name up. And I like the way, right. the, you know, General Jeff flows. That's a cool name. Right. So anyway, so I'm like, no. So I'm like, no. And then plus two, a marketing strategy I put on right list to have two names but have three guys. And then folks got to figure out who's who and what's what. And if we blow up, oh, folks going to know yeah. the individuals. Like when you say public That's enemy, true. yeah, you know public enemy is public, but you know the difference between Flavor Flav, Chuck B, Terminator X, Professor Grit. So you know right. the individuals. So I'm not worried right. about the name all over the marquee. Because if we okay. do what we're supposed to do, folks is going to know, find me and know who I am. So I'm not worried about that. Let's run yeah, with the two-name joint, Rodney Owen, Joe Cole, and so okay. that was my choice. A lot of people think like, "Oh, that's messed up how they did you." Like that was my choice. Oh. And so, okay. and so then we okay. did the Me and Joe album. Then a lot of people don't understand that the the second album we did was called Three the Hard Way. And, and then why mm-hmm. would we talk about three dudes if it's only two dudes in the group? Only a lot two. of people totally missed that when we was on Atlantic Record because we were so uh. hot. The Me and Joe album blew up so fast, burning up the charts <laughs> on on Egyptian Empire Records on the independent yeah. label. That Atlantic yeah. Records threw us a tr- uh, truck, so they backed up the truck and said, oh, we need y'all over here on Atlantic <laughs> Records. And we went over there, and then we fell, you know, prayed. That was when the hip-hop was making the transition from the streets to, you know, that was when the major labels started buying up, you know, all the right. hot action and the hot labels, and they started right. putting their, their, their tried-and-true formulas, music industry formulas, and, and attaching them on hip-hop, and then they, they stunted our growth 
and they compl- and then sampling, you know, the sampling laws came in, so we couldn't right. just dig in the crates and just grab a snack, somebody's break feet and just get it in. We had right. to literally, you know, pay to clear and license the sample or, or play live uh, uh, interpolations, what they called it, of the other music. And it's like, hold on. So, so hip-hop went kind of whack for me because there was a transition period, so our music mm-hmm. didn't go good there. And so then finally, and then with the major label, you know, just – you know, doing whatever they wanted to do and just totally don't know nothing about hip-hop. It's like, no, 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 no. Damn, you know, we were excited, like, oh, we on the major label now. Oh, yeah, they don't know what they're yeah. doing. So that was a step. Yeah. That was actually a step backwards for us. So then from there... Did you ever, did you ever have any association with McCola Records, which emerged around that time? Are you having major I mean, label problems? Records, any yeah, everything I'm talking about came through McCola, going from Uncle oh, Jam okay. Garvey, ahead, the Egyptian Lover, the Bobby Jimmy and the right. Critters, you know, right. the Egypt, you know, Rodney Hill, just all those records came out through McCola. When Two okay. Live Crew came out on the on the on the West Coast, that was through right. McCola. I don't, I don't, you know, at okay. that time, I don't know who didn't come through McCola. If you exactly. didn't go through okay. McCola, you, what, you know, so then naturally when Easy E. And, you know, because you know, all them cats started, because, of course, they followed our lead and went through McCullough, because that's all uh-huh. we knew. Okay. You know, we knew then okay. later on it was all Rainbow Records in, in, in Santa Monica, but everybody went right. through uh, McCullough in Hollywood. Okay. That was that was that's it. Right. So all these records that's I'm talking about, my whole career is, you know, for, has been McCullough, except for Atlantic wow. Records. And then after Atlantic Records, we came, we, we, we asked, oh, no, we got to please release us. We begged for Atlantic Records to, to release us. <laughs> and, and then also, too, Atlantic yeah. Records was based in New York, and they were showing all that uh, uh, favoritism to uh, the East Coast hip-hop acts. It's like, right. man, our numbers, we're outselling right. them easily, and we're not even getting the appropriate uh, uh, push and label support and, from the major labels. They're being loyal to these so-called big-name East Coast cats. Yeah. They're not moving units. We moving right. units, and when you're on yeah. the West Coast, on the strip of what what we doing, and we can't get no love, and so it's like, no, you know what, no, 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 we out. So then we came yeah. on our third album, uh, the Get Ready to Roll album, um, mm-hmm. and we shot that around. We shot that with Luke. We shot the Hammer. It blew up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had some tracks for Hammer. You know, we had a whole bunch of other stuff. We had a whole huge thing. We from the L.A. and Oakland. We finna do some things. Because before <laughs> Hammer blew up, he was uh, uh, opening act for us with Rod- when I was with Rodney and Joe a lot. So, wow. you know, it was a MC Hammer like, opened you know. up for Rodney O. and Joe Cooley before he blew oh, up. Yeah. Yeah, General he had way back when he had his on 12, when he was on 12 inches. Ring him, ding, 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 ring him. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was hard. I used to like that joint. Wow. Anyway. So, because me and Hammer knew each other from, you know, the dance circles, because, you know, we wasn't hip-hopping. You know, we in the dance. Right. There's a big club back in the days called Paradise 24 out here in, in L.A. in Hollywood. Hammer would come, okay. and his crew would come through, you know, and, and have his little 12-inches selling out the trunk and just come in, uh-huh. and they would just turn out the dance floor. And they'd be like, who is these cats? Wow. Like, oh, we from Oak Town. We, oh, Oak Town. Oh, that's good to see how they come into it looking strong and hard. It's like, I like how uh-huh. these cats get down. You know, we don't really, uh-huh. I don't know about all that outsiders coming in trying to take over stuff, but they had a certain right. style. And it was like, and then they saw it because like, man, there's something about this dude. And then later on, you know, he wound uh-huh. up opening up for us a lot of times, you know, too short. A lot of, man, we was just on this hip-hop circuit. It was just a certain right. group of us. And then, like, right. of course, them cats blew all the way up. 
And then, you right. know, when the NWA flew <laughs> all the way up and then Gangsta Rap came in, we were doing, like, street records or party records. We wasn't on no game-banging records. Ah, and so when right. Gangsta Rap came in, NWA, like, drowned out everybody. And then yeah. that Gangsta Rap thing came in, and that's when it was like, okay, there's a different energy. And my whole thing is, wow. I can do that because I'm, I'm the dope lyricist, but right. I'm not going to be on record disrespecting women and, uh, you know, talking about all this street stuff and shooting and drive-by yeah, and glorify. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do that. So my whole thing was let me talk about the streets in a way that, you know, uh, it was it's respected in the streets and what's going on, but it's more than life what's mm-hmm. going on in the streets other than just drive-by shootings and all that. Yeah. I'm, I'm still on yeah. the parties yeah. and, 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 you know, yeah. have, you know the cars yeah. and, 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 and gear and, and females, and I'm on you know, what's going on in the streets. And so, right. it was, so it was a challenge for me lyrically to, you know, stay true to what I'm talking about when gangster rap just came in and dominated and just drowned everything else out. And so that's let me, well, let me let me let me push my solo album back because I couldn't cut right. through, you know, the the strip of gangster rap. Okay, let me ask you. I, was, I wanted that that sort of illuminates what I'm about to ask you. What effect on sales did this new wave of rap have? As far as, like you said, you was, had numbers. Up until this point, you had numbers for everything that you guys was, was putting out there. Then gangster rap comes in. What effect did this have on subsequent sales of the type of stuff that you guys have produced? Well, that's a very, very good question. Thank you for that. You know, i got to add one more component to that, is that okay. by this time, you know, well, let me let me go back to when we were, when we were moving units and, mm-hmm. and back in the early days, we was selling out the trunk. We was all on independent labels, which means we was on right. black-owned labels. Macola was just pressing up our records. When I was with Bobby right. and Jimmy and the Critters, we, you know, it would start off as Russ Parr's label, and then uh, mm-hmm. Macola wound up signing us to a record deal, but it was through an independent. But everything else, everybody else was just selling out the trunk, their own label, and getting it off. Okay. So, you know, we were selling big numbers for just independent records. So now... You know, the cream ride to the top, and, you know, some cats had big hits and some of them had okay hits. And then the, the when the major labels came in, and like I said earlier, when they started buying up the, uh, uh, picking up the uh, independent acts and uh, independent labels, that so they got to the, went across the whole nation and just picked out who was hot, who, you know, who, you know, and just let's scoop them up. So once they did right. that, they controlled uh, the top of part of hip-hop. And so then from there, they put their money machines and their, their energy and what they always do behind, like what they would right. do for R&B, pop, and disco, they put right. that in the hip-hop, and then the numbers escalated significantly because now, that you know, hip-hop is all over the radio, and, you know, it was easier to move even more numbers because you're appealing to even a bigger, bigger amount of, uh, of people. And so yeah. when gangster rap came through, I mean, if the, you know, the, the doors were kicked completely wide open, and then there was mm-hmm. this new, the completely new energy that was hitting these new ears across America and around the world for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the numbers were tremendous compared to ours. So it's impossible for us to uh, be wow. independent and thinking we're going to drown out hip-hop. I mean, gangster rap drowned out everything. Okay. East Coast, West Coast, you know, NWA, yeah. you know, then when the, the controversies, when they came out with the song F the Police, 
And the feds came with the letter, like, uh, you know, on behalf of all <laughs> law enforcement, you know, oh, the feds in NWA a letter. It's like, hold on. I remember. You mean the FBI is listening to hip-hop? <laughs> and at that time, our remember. was, like, from the hood. Like, this is just our thing. We, you know, you know right. so then when the labels came in, the major labels came in, okay, this is still our thing. They getting on board with our thing. When the feds contacted NWA and said, hold on, we, we all made a record uh-huh. that caught our attention, it was like caught the FBI's attention. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was huge. You know, it was like, you know, yes, it was. You know, that, yes, you know it was. we don't know. We not, I'm not trying to go in that lane. I'm not trying to go in that direction because, you know, ain't no telling what that's going to go all off into. So I'm from the streets, but I wasn't no community activist at that time. Right. Like, no, no, right. no, y'all can have that right. lane. And so from there, so then I wound up, it got to the point where, you know, you know, we had peaked. Uh, our three albums with Rodney O and Joe Cooley, and then I left in '92, and I'm like, okay, I'm, uh, you know, I'm taking a break. And so, our, 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 you know, the studio that we made all our hits out of was called Skip Sailor Studios in Hollywood, Skip Sailor Studios. Okay. And so, um, you know, Hitman Lover, you know, Egypt, huh? You said, did you say Hitman Recording Studios? Skip Sailor. Oh, Skip Sailor. Okay, right on. In Hollywood. Okay, and so, that's called Skip Sailor. So, Skippy. <laughs> and so, um, uh, Egypt found that, that studio, and Egypt fell in love with that studio because it, they had two studios, the Room A and Room B, and Room B, they had a, mm-hmm. a, a Neve, this way before SSA, I'm, I'm getting on the technical side for the, for those hip-hop cats that know technical side, where you go in the studio, right. and everything is digital. This is now, we're talking about before digital was born. We're talking about right. when everything was 100% still digital, still wasn't even born. Still has a studio, right. right. And so, right. you know, back then, Egypt fell in love with, 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 with Studio B because they had a, a, a one of Prince's old boards, a Neve, that he recorded like Sexy Dancer and, and, and DMSR and a lot of his hits on in his room. And so mm-hmm. they can and, well, and that's what we did uh, – Everlasting bass. This is for the homies, and the, I mean a whole of men. That all oh, that need that that something about certain mixing boards that had just good energy and just is just put together wow. really well. And for some reason, good music just always it just comes out of that really really well. And that that mixing board was just incredible. All it, wow. it produced a whole lot of hits. Every almost okay. everything we did came out of that. Which just was was had a great warm sound. It's that analog warmth where the eight hundred eight would just hum all day, and it just captivated <laughs> the, the world. And so he just fell in love with that studio, and so you know that became our home studio. So from ninety two to you know, like ninety five, every time if I'm you know not doing nothing, if I don't have to do nothing to do, I'll just pass by and stop through a skip sailor, just stick my head in the door, say hey, you know, kind of be connected right. to the industry and all that kind of stuff. Right. And because through after us, like you know, one of one of the younger cats that it got put on, uh, DJ Quick started recording out of that same studio. And because he was like, mm. man, I would look on y'all records and be like, man, I want to be like these guys one day. I, you know, they, and we put our studio, <laughs> Skip Sailor Studio, recording that Skip Sailor Studio on the back of our records. So he started right. going there. So one day I'm in there, I'm just in one of the, the lounge, and I'm just, you know, I ordered some food, you know, they deliver, and I'm just eating lunch, just kicking back. And then somebody stuck their head in the door and said, hey, man, somebody told me General Jeff was in here. And I'm like, who the <laughs> hell? Yeah. Hey, you know, so the light was shot. I couldn't see. Yeah, somebody just uh, like they opened the door. Hey, like, yeah, okay. Hey, man, how you doing? Good to meet you. Hey, yeah, how you doing? Come on, who is that? And it's like, hey, my name is DJ Clear. It's like, what? 
Man, you and Ronnie uh, oh man, I'm, I'm so I'm such a fan. I'm honored. He said, "Hey man, listen, if you got a chance, I'm back here in Studio B. Can you come? I'm working on my my new album. Can you come <laughs> listen to it and tell me what you think?" And uh, so the next thing I know, like, sure, let me finish eating, and I, you know, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. youngster, yeah, well, yeah, all right, all right. And so then, uh, um, you know, I finish eating, I go back there, and I said, so I had to tell him. I said, "Look, you know, I, I keep it 100. I'm not gonna tell you what you want to hear, but." If I like it, I, I'm going to tell you I like it. If it's whack, I'm going to tell you to your face it's whack. Don't take it personal. <laughs> if you don't, if you've got sensitive feelings, I need you to understand that don't play nothing for me then because I'm, yeah. I'm not no yes man. I'm not going to oh, it's the greatest record ever. If it's the wackest record ever because you still got time to go in the studio and fix it and make it better and get it right. He said, that's exactly what I need. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, my God. Please come here, my okay. son. And that uh, was his safe and sound. And that was Quick's third album. And so he was telling me how important this album was because his first record, uh-huh. you know, blew up quick as a name. Kaboom! With, you know, right. you know, Tonight and Born and Raised in Compton and all this hits he had right. over there. And then with, with right. what he did for Second to None and then AMG, Bitch Better Have My Money and all. I mean, man, they right. were hot, high right. speed. I mean, they whole camp was vicious. They came out in 91. Right. Kaboom! Quick's right. second album was uh, uh, way too funky. And uh, the first single was, you know, just like Compton, and, and it, it was lukewarm compared to the first one. So this third one was the label, Profile Records, the same label that Run DMC and Rob Bass was on. They was like, mm-hmm. okay, this is your make it or break it album. Uh, you know, wow. your first one was, it was yeah. massive. The second one was, eh. Yeah. And they didn't want to call yeah. it a flop, but, I mean, it was okay, but it wasn't, right. uh, it wasn't that super right. smash. So they're like, right. so this third one is going to make or break your career. Either you come on with another smash, because if you come out with uh. a, a flop or something that's lukewarm, <laughs> uh, you know, you just a one, you know, you, it was just a fluke. At first, there was a lot of pressure on this third album. Yeah. You know, before yeah. he, you know, he's almost done. He came, he played it for me, and I'm not trying to say I'm all that. But okay, yeah, I'm going to mm. say I'm all that. I'm the greatest sounding board <laughs> in the history of West Coast hip-hop music. Okay. Because you okay. play working for me, I'm going to break it down from your hi-hats is too loud, your background uh-huh. vocals is not balanced, your strings uh-huh. need to be brought up, you need to rearrange. Uh-huh. Oh, man, I went in okay. on his whole entire album. He took notes. Wow. The engineer was right there, and he basically scrapped that whole album, kept one wow. song, kept one song complete and two uh, two instrumental beats you know, rewrote those two songs and scrapped everything else and started over, and that's the, that became the new safe and sound that everybody hears to this day. And then, and quick, kept you know, from from '95 to 2001, there was only three days that me and DJ Quick was apart because we we clicked. We was like brothers. We was wow. like twins. Wow. And you know, every time he was in the studio, I was in the studio right there with him. And so I got to say the, right. the sounding board. He's you know genius, full of tremendous ideals, but sometimes, but he's so he was like so, so much of a genius that sometimes it's hard to kind of, you know, you know, put all that, put everything together. And so he runs, <laughs> well, I'm right there, and it's like, oh, we're freaking packed. We, oh, you know, no, no, not this one. The other, right. Yeah, 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 there it is. Oh, you know, that kind of thing. So then Sugar Free. Right. So I did three albums right. with Quick. So it was the Safe and Sound album, the Balance and Absence album, and the Rhythmalism album. And so then there was the Sugar Free album, you know, Mossberg, Rest in Peace, you know, the Tony, Tony, yeah. Tony records, Let's Get Down, 
um, shack mm. with you. I like playing on the west side, even though I've been mm-hmm. playing on the east side. Do po 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 do. You know, oh, I mean, okay. there was so many. Man, we wow. were on such a roll over there, and you know, man, that was a great run. And so then finally after that, Dang. my consciousness kicked in. It was like, ah, I think I want to get out of that and go, uh, you know, I don't know, I want to give back to my homies in my hood and help my okay. neighborhood. Let's, let's pause, let's pause. Okay, let's, let's pause for right there. Now, what yeah. year is this that you're making this decision? What is the final um, artistic thing that you, you did before you started doing the soul searching thing? Well, you know, what, so what, I, it, um, it was something that also uh, initially sparked that. I mean, you make it sound almost like, well, I just decided to do this. But there must have been something that sparked a transition for you wanting to get back. Um, it really wasn't. I, you know, I remember really? growing up, I used yeah. to hear this phrase that was, you know, they called divine intervention. Okay, mm-hmm. where, the, uh, where the heavens tapped me on my shoulder and said, you know, go have you some fun and get out your 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 system because after this, you know, you got work to do. And it was like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm, so. So uh, in 2001, you know, I walked away from uh, literally walked away from Quick Camp in the middle of the night, and uh, you know, went back to the hood and was like, I'm back. <laughs> I have no, you know, but I just, you know, we whatever. I don't know what I'm doing. Just mm-hmm. trying to figure out, play some ball with the fella, you know, just whatever to get. Reconnected to to the to the temple of the street. Were, were you disillusioned with the music industry? Did you become disillusioned with the industry? I mean, I'm just trying to dig and see what there was no spark. You just or were you tired of making music? Or I mean, what there was no nothing that just made you make a decision? Because we're going to get into what you do now. But I'm just saying, 2001, nothing pivotal happened. You just. Man, no, I did, you know, I got tired of, you know, sleeping, sleeping, moving, living out of a suitcase, you know, okay. moving around, okay. or, you know, so then at that time, yeah. I'm sleeping on, you know, like quick couch, you know, or, right. or on the spare okay. bedroom, I'm sleeping, you know, driving his car <laughs> okay. and doing whatever, because I'm with him all day, every day, so right. when he buys okay. a brand new S500 Benz, I put more mileage. I'm the one that drove it from the East Test drove it. But then, I, you know, I drove it home from, you know, I, no, no, he was sitting the passenger side of the back seat and listening to the part, turn the music up. He'd listen to the music, you know, don't worry about it. I'll drive wherever we're going, whatever we do, right, right. whether it's to the studio, to the house, to the family's house, to the mom, I mean, all the different spots, to the accountant, right. to the bank, wherever we do handle the business, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, mm-hmm. it was like it was my car. A lot of people, oh, man, I love your new car. Like, it's, <laughs> <laughs> nah, no, it's, it's, yeah, 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 sure, whatever. Yeah, 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 you're humble. We see you driving yeah. everywhere. No, really, it's not yeah. my car. It's either, you know. And so then, <laughs> but, you know, so I, so I just got to the point where it's like, okay, I think I'm ready to, you know, have my own, do my own. I don't, it wasn't like, oh, I want to do my solo album, the unreleased, because by this time, I probably got 15, 20 unreleased albums, like just written no. lyrics and everything just no. piled up in stores, just right. different eras, different energies, different concepts, a couple of them, some super dope guaranteed hit records. And it's like, dang. Right. I really need to stop doing what I'm doing to make these super duper hits. And it's like, ah, I'll get to them. It's all right. We got hits all day long. It's nothing. <laughs> so anyway, I just, you know, wanted to, I don't know. I, it, it just hit me one day, like, you know, I'm riding around, even with Quick, you know, we I've been halfway around the world in my career, you know, Brazil, yeah. France, you know, all of, you know, all over the place. And I realized that a lot of lot of homies in the hood, you know, ain't never left the hood, you know, let alone right. go to Vegas or left California or left America. 
And it's like, okay. so I, I need, you know, it just kicked in. I, had, I, I don't know how to explain it. So I went back right. to the hood, but then the game banging, the game banging was still so prominent. Like I said, you know, mm-hmm. still, Los Angeles, the game bank capital of America, of the world, right. actually. And so right. by this time, you know, from one thing in the 80s when in the birth of drive-by shootings and all of that, now we're talking about in, you know, the, the early 2000s, you know, game banging is alive and well. And yeah. it's like I couldn't make any penetration, any traction in terms of bringing enemies to get enemy territories, enemy hoods together to sit down, break bread, and, you know, eat, drink, and be merry and find some common right. denominators to put all that down and let's build some strong black communities. So throughout all of that, somebody said, hey, man, if you really want to help people, you know, I really feel what you're doing, but I think you might be better off going to, you know, helping them folks in Skid Row. And I'm like, Skid Row? I'm not trying to do all that. I'm trying to help where I'm from. I don't that's Skid Row. That's mm-hmm. a, for those that don't know, that's the homeless capital of America right here in, in downtown Los Angeles. No, I'm like, I don't know nothing. I'm not trying to do all that. I'm trying to help in the hood. I'm from the hood. I'm trying to help mm-hmm. the hood. And so and then finally I got so frustrated. It's like, man, let me go see what this Skid Row thing is about because I, I, it can't be as bad as this. And I went to Skid Row, and then here we are 11 years later. <laughs> I'm still in Skid Row doing what I do. So I literally okay. so we're gonna, we're gonna, I literally we're gonna get myself to a state of homelessness to, you know, blend in with the people, not come in with my cape flying, da, 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 I'm here to save you, you, you. It wasn't that. I'm like, let me just come in. I had a bag. I had a ba- uh, two bags. I had a backpack on one shoulder full of clothes, and in my other backpack I had a suitcase with my drum machine, my, my MPC. Did you live? Did you live? Did you uh, live down there amongst the people? Did you actually live down yeah, there amongst exactly. That's what I'm saying. I reduced myself to a state of homelessness. Wow. At first, I did it in the hood in South Central L.A. I'm staying in abandoned, abandoned houses, abandoned mm-hmm. warehouses, out on the street corners, and I just got, and you know, all of that. So then I finally was like, uh-huh. okay, let me just roll in the skid row. And I walked, I rolled in there. I had $1,000 in, in, the, in my sock. I didn't ever tell mm-hmm. nobody, just in case this right. This experiment failed badly. Let me go get a hotel room, something to eat, a meal, and rethink my strategy. Wow. You know, you know. But wow. so I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going off, you know, just impulse. Which, like, like Quick used to have this line: "Whichever the wind is blowing, that's the way I'm going." And mm. so that's what it was. So I ended up there, and I was living on the on the sidewalks, you know, living in the missions, living in SROs, and you know. All that kind of stuff, and so then finally I started understanding, you know, politics. Because my whole thing is in the uh, entertainment industry. You know, it's a whole bunch of wolves and crooks and criminals, and you know, the number one rule yeah. in the entertainment industry is there are no rules. And so whatever, you know, hey, right. each his own, and the game is set up, you know, to hey, to go go get yours, just whatever. Right. And so you know, knowing how that is, so then when you come into the world of politics, and it's a whole bunch of aggressiveness and. And and you know what have you, and so it's like, oh, okay, I can I can handle this really well, and so then mm. you know I, I really you know accomplished a lot in a short period of time with extremely limited resources, and that's how I built up and made a name for myself. And then now they call me the mayor of Skid Row, and yeah. um, you know in 2010 yeah. CNN did a featured interview where where that just and they called me the mayor of Skid Row, and that pretty much etched that in stone, and so. You know, we've been, uh, you know, making some tremendous strides, even though um, there's a, still a whole lot of need that's happening, but it's the infrastructure in terms of a lot of nonprofit organizations that are poverty pimping that I'm speaking out against. 
There's, you know, a lot of mm. policies that are coming from the politicians and from law enforcement agencies that are criminalizing homelessness instead of really helping the people. And so I'm outspoken mm-hmm. against them. So a lot of people want to say, oh, well, I want to donate to your cause. Well, no, we, I don't have a nonprofit. I'm from the streets. So I'm just putting in work. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to have a nonprofit. I'm outspoken okay. against the nonprofit organization. I'm outspoken against the missions. And the, Well, if the missions weren't there, where would the people do? Well, we just have room for new missions or better missions or better uh, uh, more yeah. successful nonprofits instead of what's here now because what's here now, they're all poverty pimpers. And so right. a lot of people don't understand my message or they don't agree with it. Well, I don't care. That's fine. We, you know, Republicans okay. and Democrats don't get along with and understand each other's uh, politics. So I'm perfectly fine with where I'm at. If you're going to understand my truth and understand the truth of the people in the streets, or you're going to believe what society and the masses and the mainstream media is trying to, you know, the propaganda that they're pushing to each his own. I don't right. care, but I'm going to keep it real just like I kept been keeping it real with West Coast hip hop for all, for all my life. That's all I know. Okay, to do. now still let, doing me, that let me say this. Let me say this about General Jeff. He's dropping bombs on Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop. He's now a community activist. If you've been following the show for the past hour, you can see his incredible journey through hip hop. And now he's a community activist, and I can testify that the man is in the thick of whatever's going on that affects the homeless population here in Los Angeles, especially down on Skid Row. Uh, he set up, helped set up. Uh, Skid Row Music Fest, which I participated in back in 2012 with Chuck D and Public Enemy. And I give him credit for making a lot of change, helping to make a lot of changes and put some of the changes in laws that have gone through City Hall here that affect the homeless population. In a few minutes we got left, Jeff, what would you like to actually ultimately see? Because now, just like every place else, Skid Row is being gentrified. Uh, the people like my audience may not understand this, but if most big cities have skid rows, imagine a skid row where all of a sudden the skid row is being, people there are being pushed out to make room for condos and things like that. Uh, can you touch on that a little bit and see and tell us what ultimately you would like to see that would address the specific problems that the homeless have here in Los Angeles, specifically in skid row where you work at? See, not that I appreciate all, all that wonderful introduction, but I'm going to say this. Like, when I started this show, I told y'all I could go for hours and hours. I got more than, the, than an hour of work and information, and we trying to wind this show down. That's a whole other hour in and of itself because I'll have to lay down the, do, the whole do the best you can, my brother. There's a whole lot do, of do backstory. The There's a whole lot of information that a lot of listeners don't know that I can't just right. speak to without, I don't want to, you know, like no child left behind. I need to listen well, to really this, no listener left too, behind to let's, understand let's, the, the, the playing field before I can talk about the plays and well, the moves that are being this. made, you know, that kind let's of do thing. It like what this, I will say is this, okay. Kid Row is, that's, a, that's misinformation that, again, when I talk about the mainstream media propaganda that they're pushing out, Skid Row's not going anywhere. We have affordable uh-huh. housing covenants on the SRO buildings, the, the low-income housing for homeless folks, the SRO, single-room occupancy. And so because uh-huh. the affordable housing covenants uh, last for up, to, for up to 55 years, and even then okay. they can be extended beyond that. So the missions are the cornerstone of the Skid Row community, and then you've got about, you know, 20, about 30 uh, uh, SRO uh, housing units, buildings, in there that house thousands of residents, and then not to mention, you know, because of the, uh, you know, a lot of the tents and encampments on the uh, sidewalks. So we've got between mm-hmm. ten and fifteen thousand, ten and twenty thousand 
homeless folks, right? You know, that are considered homeless, even if you're inside right. a mission or inside transition, how you still consider homelessness based right. on HUD rules of how uh, the the Department of Housing and Urban uh, Development out of Washington D.C. You still consider homeless, right. and so with that. Um, you know, we we're not going anywhere. So what the developers are doing is they're buying everything on the outskirts, all the independent stuff. But they're not pushing us anywhere. If anything, we're holding the okay. line. Thanks to you know okay. leaders like myself. There's other Los Angeles Community Action Network called LA Can. There's other organizations that's holding that line down. But I definitely want to say this. I don't know how much time we got left. That you know my my through my positive efforts in uh, community activism, you know, for uh, Skid Row that, you know, mm-hmm. I connected with uh, uh, City Hall. And so just mm-hmm. recently I was able to politic and make uh, the city of Los Angeles, you know, officially recognize Uncle Jam's Army, and they declared yes, October 28th Uncle Jam's Army Day. And so, yes, then that, you know, that in and of itself was huge, not only for uh, Uncle Jam's Army founder, Roger Clayton, rest in peace, and for the rest mm-hmm. of the cats from Egyptian Lover, Bob Cat, you know, all the other cats, all the other folks that was a part of uh, – Uncle Jam's Army, you know, we were officially recognized in city council chambers, and every day right. for the rest of our lives, October 28th right. in the city of Los Angeles will be known as Uncle Jam's Army Day. That's what General wow. Jeff do when he put politics together. So then from all okay. of that, now I'm getting back into hip-hop, and I want to let folks know, and now I'm a member of the L.A. Dream Team. That's the old-school yep. West Coast hip-hop. That's the first uh, group on the West Coast that had a major record deal. And so right. with MCA Records, and so, you know, Rudy Pardee, rest in peace, died in 1998 from a scuba diving accident. So I'm taking Rudy Pardee's mm-hmm. place, and me and Snake Club, okay. the original member of L.A. Dream Team 7. Now, we're getting ready to go out and do some shows and do some new things, so I'm getting back into my West Coast hip-hop roots. Beautiful. Okay, General Jeff, dropping bombs, and uh, we're proud to have you on our show. Where can people go? to keep track of what General Jeff is doing as far as your current career uh, um, with um, uh, working as an activist? And also, is there a website or anything where they can start following the development of the new L.A. Dream Team project? Ooh, okay, let me see. So General Jeff is on Facebook as General Jeff. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, on, on uh, 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 Twitter, it's uh, at Skid Row General Jeff. Or Instagram, it's it's at Skid Row General Jeff. Um, you know, I'm also the chair of the Skid Skid Row Neighborhood Council Formation Committee. We're in the process of creating our own government and a government body in Skid Row. So there's a, a website, Skid Row Neighborhood Council dot com. Uh, as far as okay. LA Dream Team, you know, bookings, everything goes through original member Snake Puppy. You can email him at snakepup2000 at gmail.com, and that automatically comes to both of us. So, um, you know, those, those are ways to do it. And I'm, I'm, I'm bold enough and, and, and strong enough to put my cell phone out there. Hit me on my cell. If you're really homeless, you, you really need some help or need somebody to talk to, hit me on my cell, 323 323- Four four five zero seven two three. That's a direct line to General Jeff. Now, if you can't find me something wrong with you, at my personal email is <laughs> issues and solutions at yahoo.com. In September 2007, I started my own activist organization. It's grassroots, just me. It's uh, issues and solutions. And so our email address is issues and solutions at yahoo.com. And been in, in, in the business for 11 years now. So that's what we do, 
you know, no, no, nothing to hide, no stones unturned. We do what we can. If we can't do it, we'll point you in the right direction. That's all we got. Okay. <laughs> One man the incredible story. Incredible career, incredible story. General Jeff, we want to thank you for your contribution to hip-hop. We want to thank you for your contribution to to entertainment, Uh, period. Uh, The breadth and scope of your career is really astounding for one individual, and now you've reinvented yourself once again doing work, giving back to the people. Uh, You can't finish your life any better than that. God has blessed you. You've defeated cancer. He had plans for you, my brother. And uh, you're carrying them out uh, immeasurably well. So thank you, General Jeff, for doing our show. We want to any support, Disco Daddy and Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop, uh, Maven Lynn, Maven Lynn Productions can give you. All you got to do is call us, my brother. Indeed, indeed. I just want to thank you, uh, Disco Daddy, you know, the preeminent uh, pioneer on the West Coast hip hop first generation. So, uh, you know, I'm honored to be on the show, Disco Daddy's Worldwide Hip-Hop. So, you know, whatever I can do to help any time, brother. Thank you. You've been listening to Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip-Hop. Our guest this week, General Jeff. Stay tuned. Next week we got another bombshell show for you. Peace. Peace. So wasn't it a great show? Come back next week. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop Show. Man, it's a great one. Epic, epic. See you next week. Bye.